Hello, welcome to the Leaf by Lantern podcast. My name is Alicia Pollard. I am a follower of Jesus Christ, a bookworm, a storyteller, and a lover of fairy tales. This podcast opens the conversation about retelling fairy tales in the light of scripture, or how Christian artists can retell fairy tales well by learning from the beautiful truth of the Bible. This episode introduces the show and answers a few questions. Why fairy tale retellings? Why use scripture as a light or interpretive framework, and what does that mean? And why me? Who am I, and why am I doing this? First, why fairy tale retellings? Like many, I grew up reading fairy tales. I spent my childhood in a New England fishing village, and the library was once a one-room schoolroom that they renovated. It was beautiful. It had these long, gleaming wooden floors, red oriental rugs, ship models in glass cases, sailors' valentines on the walls, and a folklore section in the corner of the children's wing. And there I devoured so many tales. I read the Hutchinson Treasury of Children's Literature, Andrew Lang's Colored Fairy Books, the Blue Fairy Book, the Green Fairy Book, the Red Fairy Book, uh, 12 in all, I believe. I, I kept being stressed out on his behalf. He wouldn't keep thinking of new colors, but, but somehow he managed. Tales from Iceland and Hungary, Norway, Ireland, The Boulderized Thousand and One Nights, The Big Book of Dragons. And I love them. I love the pattern of the tales, the once upon a time, the happily ever after, the quests, the mythical images like dragons and palaces and islands and gardens and wells and magic rings. They captured my imagination and they made me yearn for things that I could not name. As I grew up, I shifted from reading original fairy tales as much to loving fairy tale retellings. So of course, a fairy tale retelling takes the bones of a fairy tale, the rule of three or seven or 12, the images like the glass slipper or the three wishes, and incarnates them in a more complex world with more fully developed characters. So the work of authors like Robin McKinley, Jessica Day George, Gail Carson Levine, Patricia Reedy, Helen Lowe, Heather Dixon, Susan Cooper, and others really inspired me. They, they opened doors for me. They filled the landscape of my mind with wonders. I've wanted to start a podcast for a while since I love podcasts. And when I did, this is the topic I chose, fairy tale retellings and speaking to fellow lovers of fairy tales and fantasy and artists. After a while in my reading journey, I turned from enjoying fairy tales and fairy tale retellings to wanting to research them more, get more of the scholarly knowledge of the background and the context and the deeper meanings in order to enjoy them on that whole different level. Unfortunately, I quickly found articles and books that attacked fairy tales in studying them or gave them unpleasant meanings that just completely ruined them for me. I remember thinking, why are scholars spending so much time studying fairy tales if, if they just want to tear them apart. So for example, and this is not a terrible example, but an, an early one, I googled one of my favorite fairy tales, East of the Sun and West of the Moon, and I found a commentary online that went through the tale and explained that this tale and other animal bridegroom stories, that's the folklore category, were intended to persuade scared young women to be obedient to arranged marriages to men they didn't know. I remember reading that, and realizing and thinking, oh, that's it? Really? That's that's all the tale is? The the polar bear and the palace and snow and stars and and the sun and the moon and the winds and and the ending and the happy ending and everything. It's that's it? That's that's all this tale is. That it's it's just meant to make young brides compliant. And I felt this great sense of loss. 
So in my brief and shallow research into fairy tale scholarship, I found four main schools of literary theory. These are very well known. They, are, they apply to all stories, not just fairy tales. So I'll just quickly name them. I think most people are familiar enough that I don't need to go into depth. These schools would be feminism, Marxism, Freudianism, and then the fourth would be psychological and Jungian approaches. I'm lumping those together. So feminist scholars would look at how fairy tales support or reveal a patriarchal worldview and that they're all about the subjugation of women and girls. So the East of the Sun, West of the Moon commentary I mentioned, that would be a feminist reading, among other things. So an exa another example of a feminist reading would be Sandra Gilbert and Susan Goober's section on Snow White that they wrote in their famous study, The Mad Woman in the Attic. So in looking at Snow White, these scholars argue that the fairy tale shows how a patriarchal society pits older women against younger women in the gaze of a male mirror in, in the quest for beauty, and that that competition drives them mad. Marxist scholars would look at how fairy tales are tools of oppression, or in other words, they're all about the subversion of oppression. For example, a Marxist reading of Cinderella would likely focus on the class conflict between Cinderella the servant, the stepmother the oppressor, and Cinderella's shift from being working class to ruling class at the end when she marries the prince, and whether that's good or bad. And I found with all four of these schools, many of these readings were negative. The fairy tale is bad uh, and has, has bad ideas in it for these reasons. The third school would be Freudianism. I won't go into detail here. I think everyone knows the works of, of Sigmund Freud and what he argued. But a Freudian reading of a fairy tale would be R-rated, and it would turn each image and symbol into something sexual and disturbing. The fourth school, Psychological and Jungian Approaches, I find the most interesting, and it was the one that caught my attention the most. This school would use a fairy tale as an analogy for something that's going on in the human brain. But often, not always, but often, not as something spiritual or transcendent beyond the human experience. So my example here is Robert Bly's beautifully written book, More Than True, The Wisdom of Fairy Tales. He goes through six fairy tales, and he references poetry and intercultural literature from across the world, and gives a psychological reading of each. So the first tale he tackles is the Frog Prince. And if you'll remember, in the Frog Prince, the princess drops her golden ball down the well, and then the frog has to go get it for her, and, 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 and thus the tale continues. He says, quote, the golden ball suggests the sun, an integrated, round, golden energy, but also that kind of wholeness we had in us when we were three or four or five years old. To some extent, the golden ball is the energy that radiates in all directions off a young child. When you take that child and force him to sit still and become socialized, a lot of that energy is suppressed. And by the time the child is 18, the golden ball is down in the water." End quote. I find psychological and Jungian readings so interesting, as I said, but if they don't acknowledge any spiritual or transcendent reality beyond the human, I find them claustrophobic. The, the sky has been closed off because I am a Christian and I believe that to ignore the invisible spiritual reality of God, and of course, unfortunately, the spiritual forces that oppose God, is to ignore a crucial part of reality, both for truth and for hope. I don't necessarily disagree with every reading that comes through these lenses of feminism, Marxism, Freudianism, or psychological and Jungian approaches. I think you can find fascinating thoughts in all of them. I think all of them do have something true to say about reality. 
But not only did I find many interpretations negative, they they just seemed to want to attack the fairy tale and make me feel guilty for enjoying it. But they were also reductive. The fairy tale is nothing but, you know, nothing but a story of class conflict. It's nothing but women being subjugated. And the beauty and the joy that I found in fairy tales just, it didn't seem to matter in, in these uh, scholarly lenses. I felt as if I'd condoned something wrong by ever enjoying a happily ever after. I'm not alone in this. A.S. Byatt, the English novelist, wrote an introduction to Maria Tater's annotated collection of the Brothers Grimm. And in that introduction, she described how a Freudian reading of Sleeping Beauty that she read made her feel. She did not mind the Freudian reading. It didn't offend her. She liked it. But she said it, quote, diminishes the compact, satisfactory nature of the tale itself to gloss it in this way. It takes away, not deepens, its mystery. So I was not alone there. So those are four scholarly schools on fairy tale research. In the world of, of creative writing and art and artists who would tackle fairy tale retellings, I also found a couple of viewpoints with which I do not agree. These would be what I call the dark and twisted school and then the rewriting or correcting school. So the dark and twisted school, often I'll find fairy tale retellings that are marketed as being dark or twisted. As I say, this is more than just swapping the hero and the villain and turning the tale inside out. I think you can get an interesting story out of that. Uh, I like Wicked, the Broadway musical, which does that with the literary fairy tale, The Wizard of Oz. But a dark or twisted retelling is more than that. It will often be intentionally disturbing, intentionally perverse. Just look at the worst aspects of human nature and take away the possibility of hope. I do not find those to be true to the world. The second school I encountered and disagreed with, I called the rewriting or correcting school. Fairy tales are backwards and old-fashioned. They're misguided. They're dangerous. So if you want to retell one for some strange reason, you need to take it and strip away all the out offensive and outdated things, uh, values, and then replace those with modern-day values. I was reflecting on that last school one day as I was thinking about this and thinking about this podcast and wondering what, why is it that because we're alive today, we have the power and authority. Well, we have the power, but why should we have the moral ethical authority to rewrite the past? It, why would our ancestors have nothing true to say that we could actually listen to? It's not that I think that everything everyone agreed with in the past was actually true, but to, to act like the standard of truth was just life, the fact that we're alive today and are somehow enlightened by that did not feel fair to me. It did not feel right. But as I was reflecting that way, I realized that I was being somewhat hypocritical because I am a rewriter as well. I am just as likely as anyone else to take a fairy tale and retell it in a way that avoids or reinterprets or gets around or somehow deals with anything that I find troubling, anything just too weird on its own when I translate it into a different medium, anything strange, anything wrong anything uncomfortable. For example, I love Sleeping Beauty and Snow White, the fairy tales. I think they're beautiful. And clearly many other people do too, because there are many, many retellings. But I am just as likely, in fact, more than likely, I would arrange in my retelling to have the princesses meet their princes earlier on in the story and develop a relationship so that the kiss or the awakening at the end was not creepy. Of course I would do that. In Rapunzel, I also love that fairy tale. I would have the giveaway that the prince has been visiting Rapunzel be something slightly better, smarter, more respectable 
than Rapunzel giving it away by saying, oh, witch, why are you so much heavier than the prince I lift up here every day? Which is very innocent and makes sense because she's so innocent, but it's also so dumb. So I would try to avoid or reinterpret things that trouble me just as much as anyone else. I want to retell fairy tales. I'm a creative writer. So if I disagree with the lenses that these scholars are using, fundamentally, and if I disagree with the schools of retelling that I talked about, what is the lens that I'm using? What is my standard for truth and beauty? It has to be more than my personal opinion. It has to be something outside of me, something transcendent. And of course, I realize because I'm a Christian, my lens or my light for all of reality is the word of God, the Bible, scripture. And that must be my lens for retelling fairy tales. So that was the first question, why fairy tale retellings? Now the second question, why scripture? I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I believe the Bible is what it says it is, the word of God. And then it teaches us how to read it. I'm intentionally speaking to a Christian audience, but for those who are not, or anyone who'd like who would like to know where I stand, uh, here I stand on the authority of Scripture. Scripture defines itself for us. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul is talking to his protege, Timothy. And he says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The two basic premises from that statement, scripture is breathed out by God and it equips us for every good work. Breathed out by God, it is an expression of God's goodness and wisdom that helps us in teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. It equips us for every good work. I believe the study and retelling of fairy tales can be a good work for the glory of God. To cite a second passage in which scripture teaches us what it is, I'll go to Isaiah 55, one of my favorite chapters. In this whole book, God has been speaking through his prophet Isaiah to call Israel to return to him, to repent and receive the compassion and pardon of the highest king, whose thoughts and ways are high above ours. So verses 10 and 11 of Isaiah 55, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The poetry of this passage speaks to the unstoppable power and also the beauty of scripture. The rain and the snow are images of fruitfulness and overflowing goodness from heaven, the goodness of God. Scripture defines truth. It gives us the law, what we should and should not do. And we need that. We need that clarity. But better than that, scripture gives us grace and mercy for when we inevitably fail to obey the law because God sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty for our disobedience. Scripture defines beauty. It is a beautiful text that teaches us to identify what is beautiful and what is not and what is pleasing to God. It gives us discernment. I had a moment of awkwardness here as I was thinking about this, about how to use or reference scripture in the art of retelling fairy tales, because the church, God's people, has had some suspicion of beauty and art in the past, depending on the time period and the leadership at the time and the denomination and the tradition. There are some good reasons for caution and for wisdom 
when it comes to beauty, because beauty can be an idol in itself. It can be an aspect of temptation. Unfortunately, this suspicion of beauty has led to certain episodes in history. You'll find that in modern fantasy, especially fairy-related fantasy, the church will be portrayed as the enemy. It's a bully. It's an imperialist force that oppresses and crushes all the stories and traditions of pagan cultures. I'm thankful that I grew up in a healthy church and family that embraced the grace of God given in salvation, as well as in the loveliness of creation. I was taught to enjoy beautiful things as a gift and not as automatically evil. However, growing up, the world of fireside tales and haunted woods and shimmering palaces, the world I associate with fairy tales felt like a guilty pleasure that was something separate from my church life that had all that was real and dutiful and good, but was not as colorful. But I'm slowly growing up or maybe becoming the child that I should have been. And I believe what the Bible says about God, that he is good, that he created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, that he is love, that he is rich and mercy, he is righteous, he is just and upright, he is everlasting, that he does what Psalm 147, three through four says, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Also what Jeremiah 51, 15 says, he made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. This all-powerful, wondrous, mysterious, loving God is the source of all goodness. There is nothing good or true or joyful or beautiful or peaceful that does not come ultimately from him. He is not some strict, dour, grandfatherly figure who breaks the children's toys and stomps on the flowers. He is the infinite and loving I am, the creator and redeemer and healer. He rescues, he heals, he restores, he makes new. He refines things like fire, he shapes them like clay. He resurrects dead things. And that is what he does with us, the people he calls to come to him. Scripture is not a book of rules that irons the joy out of life. It illuminates and expands what is good. It opens the doors of mystery and wonder. It clarifies good from evil and illusion from reality. It is not a lens or a framework or a school of thought that would distort or reduce or pervert a fairy tale like some of the interpretations I encountered. It makes beautiful things more beautiful and it distinguishes the silver from the dross and the fool's gold from the real gold. If the best fairy tales echo eternal truth, which I believe they do, they're safe with scripture because it is the original song of the king. There is no better lantern for the tree of tales. Uh, the tree of tales is what J.R.R. Tolkien called the canon of folklore, than the lamp and the light of the Bible. I'm calling that image from Psalm 119, 105. And looking to scripture reframes and recenters the entire practice of art so that it's not a matter of being dutiful at church and then enjoying fairy tales as a guilty pleasure, but living the holistic and abundant and joyful life of glorifying God in all that we do. So to be very clear, scripture is not the means to an end. Scripture teaches us the beginning and the end, which is to know the living God and have life in him. So that's why scripture will be the light or the lens for truth and beauty for ethics and aesthetics on this podcast. I'll give you an example of how I'll reference scripture as the interpretive framework or lens or light 
for retelling fairy tales. Let's say I'm setting out to t retell or do a retelling of the 12 dancing princesses. This is also called the worn out dancing shoes in Grimm's collection. And it's one of my favorite fairy tales. I love it. I'll assume you know the story, but to summarize, 12 princesses wear out their dancing shoes night after night dancing and their father has no idea where they're going. They won't tell him. So he hires some suitors to try to find out. And finally, a former soldier follows them using an invisibility cloak and finds that they're going to a magical underground palace. So referencing scripture, here are a couple of things, just a few that I could do. First, an ethical question. Scripture teaches us ethics. There is a central problem when you begin this fairy tale, and that is that the 12 daughters are disobeying and thus dishonoring their father and not telling him where they're going to dance. Scripture is very clear on this, that you need to honor your father and mother. Exodus 20, 12, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So unless a parent is commanding a child to do something that breaks the law of God, a child must obey. So the central question ethically, as you're beginning your retelling, is why? Why are the sisters, the daughters, disobeying their father? Is it their fault? Maybe they're enchanted. They've been tricked. They've been trapped. And so it's they're, they're not at fault, but they do need to be rescued. Is he a good father or bad father? But what kind of relational harm is going on? Because where there is relational harm, there is story. And scripturally, a happy ending needs to resolve that harm somehow, with justice, certainly, ideally with mercy, with forgiveness, and with reconciliation in some, in some way, in some form. So that's an ethical question. But again, scripture is not just a book of rules. It is the word of God, and it is full of beautiful images that teach us about who God is and who we are and the true state of the world. So I'll pick an image that you can reference in scripture from this tale. And the one I'll choose is 12, the number 12. Numbers matter in scripture. They also, as you probably know, matter in fairy tales. In scripture, 12 is the number of Jacob's sons and then the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's also the number of apostles that the Lord Jesus calls before Paul becomes the 13th apostle. In this, this tale, there are 12 daughters. And that means a unity in diversity. They're symmetrical, they're orderly, they're distinct but unified, and they would need individual personalities. A good way to approach this is to look at the sons of Jacob and how they're distinguished. Jacob gives a prophecy for each one in Genesis 49, and each of them has their own realm or rule of order or defining characteristic. Later, the 12 tribes also have their own territory, which is important. Important things go on in each territory. Judah is the royal line, the royal son from whom the Messiah comes. Levi is the priestly line. Dan is linked with a serpent. Asher is described as a tribe with rich food and royal delicacies. All of these are poetic, which means that they have more than just one meaning. They're complex. And that's how you build complex characters. Most of the fairy tale retellings I've read of the 12 dancing princesses focus on three or four daughters, and then the rest kind of fade into the background. They'll have a name, they'll have one major defining characteristic, but I think you could pull it off by giving a reader a sense of every one of the 12, honoring her individuality, especially if you copy Jacob and give them more of a poetic description, link them with a certain kind of landscape or a certain kind of animal, maybe just subtly, and that will enrich your whole story. There are other images in this tale you can reference in scripture. Shoes, the dancing shoes, palaces, 
the lake. There's a goblet the soldier takes at one point, cups and cup bearing in scripture, the invisibility cloak, the old woman who gave the soldier the invisibility cloak, so many. And because scripture is beautiful and true, it will inspire you and it will expand all that you can do because there is freedom in the truth. Last question, why me? To be clear, I'm an amateur. I have few scholarly credentials, but a lot of love for this subject. My one scholarly credential is that I earned a master's degree in theology and the arts at the University of St. Andrews. And that gives me just enough scholarly knowledge to know far better than to claim the authority of an expert. I come to this podcast as a novice storyteller and a part-time independent researcher. But I wanted to offer it to open up a conversation on topics that I love, including creative writing or art in general, fairy tales, and most of all, scripture. For those who are interested in fairy tale scholarship, especially from the Christian tradition, I'll point you to a couple of academic resources that I know of. The first is a course called How to Read Fairy Tales. It's online asynchronous video course by Angelina Stanford of the House of Humane Letters. I took this course a year ago and it reignited my interest and my hope for fairy tales and studying fairy tales, that I could love them without being a terrible person. And that yes, they do honor the gospel, the best ones do. Her course is delightful. It's packed with useful information and great insights. It's very fun. You can take it at any time and it is ridiculously inexpensive for the quality of the content. So how to read fairy tales online video course by Angelina Stanford, and I'll put a link in the show notes. The second major resource is also a video course, but it's only offered at certain times of the year. So this is Junius Johnson's fairy tale courses. He offers them for different age brackets with different names. Junius Johnson is a medieval scholar. He is profound and deep. He says just such wonderful things. He has such great insights, uh, but he also makes them accessible and they're delightful. So depending on the time of year, you can take these, but all of his courses are excellent. So Junius Johnson's courses on uh, Junius Johnson Academics is his platform. I'll add some links to other textual sources on fairy tales in the show notes. I hope this podcast is a source of delight and opens up a great discussion. I'll have guests, as many as I can find, and walk through specific fairy tales and how an artist can approach retelling them using the lens of scripture. I plan to focus on tales that are probably less well-known than the major ones that have been retold and adapted and represented again and again. Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, the Beauty and the Beast, etc. Uh, so many. Um, they're, they're wonderful. I love them. Maybe I'll, I'll come to them at some point. But they've been retold so often, I'm not sure I can add very much, at least to begin with. So I'll start with lesser-known tales. But anyway, thank you for listening, and I hope you join next time. Thank you.